Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other man, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. And the next reading is from the first chapter of Romans and verses 18 to 25. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what he has made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created beings rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we are going to think on things today that are both confronting uh, and at the same time we trust and hope and pray will be uh, uplifting. So as we consider just the extent of our sin at the same time, remind us this morning of your extraordinary grace and compassion that you show to us in the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, well, thank you. It's lovely to be back with you again. Um, as a visiting preacher, it's always great on the second week if there are people still there. So good to see you all uh, here today. Um, I'll ask you please to take out again from the inside of your leaflets these little handout. Um, again, like last week, it's pretty detailed. There's a bunch of Bible passages in there. Uh, there's blanks for you to fill in. So if you've got a pen or if you need one, grab one. That will help you to follow along over the course of the talk. Um, as, I, uh, as I said before, it's great to be back with you. Uh, this week, instead of bringing my youngest, I have brought my beloved, my wife, Wendy, is with me. So uh, please come and say hello to her afterwards. Um, uh, she would love to meet you as well. Um, and I thought while I was uh, just 
mentioning that Wendy's here, one of the things that Wendy and I do together is that we run the marriage ministry at Trinity City. And uh, we actually have a marriage night coming up this Thursday night. So for those who are married, helping to think about what we've called the mad maze of marriage and ministry. Uh, Just how you work together as a couple to be involved in serving in a local church while still growing your own marriage. Uh, One of the reasons why I thought I'd mention that is uh, these little cards are on the table at the back. Uh, Your very own Graham and Robin Watson uh, will be on the panel this week uh, on Thursday night. Uh, We've asked them if they'll come and share a little bit as well. So uh, that's on Thursday night in Trinity City. Come and chat with us afterwards if you'd like. Uh, And as Colin said at the beginning, there's a chance for Q&A at the end of this talk, which uh, will be an opportunity just to reflect on some of the things that we've been seeing in this series. If you look at the top of the handout, you'll see that last week uh, we began this series on the doctrine of election, looking at God's unfettered sovereignty, how God has the right to do whatever he wants with his creation. Uh, This week, the topic for the talk is called, There is no unrighteous, not even one, our total depravity. Uh, There are a few things that people dislike as much in life as going to the dentist. I was talking to some of the dental students who come to our church the other week, And they were saying that uh, apparently there's even an officially recognised condition called dental anxiety syndrome. Dental anxiety syndrome. Apparently, 75% of the population experienced this at some point in their life. Now, if you've ever had to make an emergency trip to the dentist, uh, you'll know that when you go, all you're interested in is instant relief. But before the dentist can make it better the first thing they have to do is probably diagnose the problem. After all, it'd be a real shame if they extracted the wrong tooth. Now, uh, that means that before you get to the solution, you have to endure a certain degree of discomfort. And in many ways, today's talk is going to be just like a trip to the dentist. Uh, I want to promise you there will be blessed relief at the end, but there's going to be a little bit of pain before we get there. Because we're thinking about this topic of sin. See, last week we saw how God's unfettered sovereignty means that the creator is entitled to do whatever he wants with his creation. And incredibly, he chose to make us to do good works and to share in his glory. How wonderful he is. He is worthy of our praise. This week, we're going to see how our sin has ruined everything. What that will mean is that our only hope is that our good and gracious God intervenes again to set things right. Well, same kind of structure as last week. A big idea, some questions that that raises, and then some possible responses. And so let's kick off with the big idea today. Uh, This is from that uh, second reading that we heard from Romans chapter 1, in which Paul makes two crucial points. And I printed the passage there for you. Uh, Firstly, from verses 18 through 20, Paul is saying that the wonder of God's creation proves that there is a God. Uh, His eternal power and divine nature, according to Paul, they have been clearly seen from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Pick it up in verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. 
What Paul is saying in Romans chapter 1 is that no one can claim God is unknowable. No one can claim God refuses to reveal himself to me. Because according to Paul, you can see God from his creation. The difficulty is that Paul goes on to say that we have suppressed that truth about God, verse 18, and that means therefore, verse 20, we are without excuse. That is, we have a knowledge of God, but we have all willingly and willfully ignored that knowledge. We have all turned a blind eye to God. We are all, you might say, involved in a cover-up. And that means that by default, all of us stand guilty before God. And what that means is that if someone asks you, can you really know God from creation? Can you really know God from creation? Well, the answer is, yes in theory, but no in practice. Yes in theory, but no in practice, because of our sin. And that's why evangelism, which extols the marvels of scientific discovery, of trying to see how there must be a God from the marvels of creation, that's good but insufficient. At best, it leads people to a theism, whereas instead, we want to lead people to Christ. Okay, that's the first point that Paul is making from Romans chapter 1. Here's the second point uh, from verses 21 through 25. Not only have we rejected our maker, not only have we failed to glorify God and give him thanks, we've done something worse. We've filled that void with something different. Instead of worshipping God, we worship and serve created things rather than the creator. So again there from verses 21 and 25, Romans chapter 1, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. What Paul is reminding us is that everyone worships something. God has made us that way. He has made us so that we are drawn to giving our lives to praise something or someone. And of course, the difficulty for us is that worshipping created things rather than worshipping the Creator, it's what the Bible calls idolatry, it's so tempting, it's so easy here in Adelaide of all places because, well, in the end, people only worship good things and, to be pretty blunt, our lives are full of good things in a place like Adelaide in the 21st century. Just pause for a moment and reflect on how good our lives are. We don't have all of these things all of the time, but on the whole, they are full of amazing blessings from God. Uh, here in Adelaide in particular, of course, we are known as the food and wine capital of Australia. We have sensational weather. We have festivals every week of the year of any type that you like. Even, Ben tells me, caravanning shows i can't think of anything worse in life but for, for those of you who enjoy that you can just go and look at caravans on the weekend and dream about the things you might do with them of course the best thing about living in adelaide is that you can afford to buy a house and you don't have to spend all your time driving in traffic to get there and as we all know i mentioned last week i'm from new south wales uh, adelaide there are no convicts It's funny, you know, when people find out that I was born in New South Wales, about the first thing they say to me is, we're all free settlers here. 
Uh, to which I've learnt to reply, yeah, there's a good chance my ancestors weren't on the first fleet either. <laughs> Life is full of good things. Not all the time, but on the whole. It's tempting to become idolaters, isn't it? Romans 1 says that our knowledge of God from creation, instead of enabling us to live rightly in his world, ultimately, it only serves to condemn us. You see, in turn, we reap the consequences of our actions, of not living to glorify and praise the one who has made us. At one level, if you cut yourself off from the source of life, it means that in the end, we are bound to die. It's like in that great video clip we saw before. That image there of us, us being like devices that don't have charges anymore. There's a battery but it's running down. But the other way in which we see that we reap the consequences of our actions is that, according to the Bible, the essence of sin is more than just breaking laws. It's more than just disobeying God's commands. Ultimately, the essence of sin is ingratitude. It's not giving thanks to the one who has given us everything. It's the image of betrayal. And so here's today's big idea, and it's the blank for you to fill in down the bottom of that first section. Because of the way in which we have rejected our maker, if God treated us fairly, if he treated us as we deserve, then, here's the blank, no one would be saved. If God treated us fairly, the way we deserve, no one would be saved. Now, that's a pretty bleak way to start the talk, isn't it? Is there going to be any hope? Well, I did say at the start that, like that trip to the dentist, there will be. But before you get to the remedy, you have to, um, pardon the metaphor, the dentist has to dig around a bit. They have to see just how deep the problem runs, how corrupt we are. So, this next section is going to hurt. But the consolation is that relief is even sweeter when we grasp just how bleak our situation is. So point two then, some questions to consider. I've got two I'd like to cover today. The first, near the bottom of the page, are we really that bad? Then over the page, is there any hope? Let's start with the first one. Are we really that bad? I've spoken so far about what Paul says about humanity in general about the way in which we have rejected our God, we've betrayed our maker, and therefore we are due to suffer the consequences of our actions. Of course, the question for us is, in asking, are we really that bad? Actually, what we're saying is, am I that bad? Other people might be. But does that mean me as well? Well, again, according to the Bible, yes, we are. And to try and make that case today, I'm going to introduce you to two key theological terms. I said at the start of this series, I want to try and use uh, terms that will enable you to read good Christian books on the topic. So I'm going to introduce you to two terms today. The first is called the doctrine of original sin. And you can see that printed at the bottom of your handout, the doctrine of original sin. The doctrine of original sin says that because of Adam's disobedience, Adam, the first man, because of his disobedience, you and I are born into sin. 
It is part of what we would call human nature. And that's because even though our loving God didn't originally make us sinful, we don't live anymore in a Genesis 1 and 2 paradise. We live in the broken mess of Genesis 3. Uh, Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 5, a little bit later in the book we've been in so far. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all people because all sinned. This is the doctrine of original sin. Now, uh, countless works of fiction try to portray this inconvenient truth about humanity, that we are born into sin. Uh, Perhaps the most famous... Uh, is the 1954 classic, The Lord of the Flies. Uh, The Lord of the Flies, if you've ever read this book. Uh, This is a fictional account of what happens when a bunch of English schoolboys are stranded on a desert island. And within two weeks, you see the very worst in humanity, even in children. But of course, fiction is only just a mirror for real life. So I thought today what I'd do is I'd tell you about a different story Uh, This is what happened in Canada in 1969 uh, when the police went missing in Montreal. Uh, They announced that they were going to go on strike in support of a better pay claim. Uh, Montreal, I don't know, has anyone ever been to Montreal? This is great, no one's been, so I can say whatever I want. Uh, Montreal, from what I understand, is pretty much like Adelaide. (laughs) It's just a, a quiet, sleepy little town. It's safe, there's no convicts, right? So you expect... It's a pretty nice place. Here's what happened. The police said they were going on strike. Let me quote to you from a book um, that uh, tells the history of that day. At 8 a.m. on October 17, 1969, as advertised, the Montreal police went on strike. By 11.20, the first bank had been robbed. By noon, downtown stores had all been closed because of looting. By 2 p.m., Taxi drivers had burned down the garage of a limousine service that competed with them for customers. A rooftop sniper killed a provincial police officer. Rioters broke into hotels and restaurants. And a doctor killed a burglar in his surgery. By 5pm, six banks had been robbed, a hundred shops had been looted, twelve fires had been set... 40 carloads of storefront glass had been broken and $3 million in property damage had been inflicted before the city authorities had to call in the army to restore order and, of course, the Mounties. Now, I don't know what you think about that. It, it sounds almost apocryphal. It sounds almost like fiction, doesn't it? It's not. Now, hang on a moment, Jeff. I hear you say uh, the doctrine of original sin, uh, even if it's true, that's grossly unfair. After all, you and I, we weren't in the Garden of Eden with Adam. Why are we being punished for their transgressions? Well, fair question to ask. The answer that the Bible gives is because if you and I had been there, we would have done exactly the same thing. We are all now inherently sinful. At heart... I am just as bad as everyone else. The way in which I try and express that to the students who I work with is that um, what I often say to them is that the only thing that prevents me from becoming a megalomaniac dictator is lack of opportunity. 
As an aside, this is Romans 1's answer to why do bad things happen to good people? The answer that Romans 1 gives is that none of us are good. We have all rejected our loving creator and that means now as a race we reap the consequences of what we have sown. Suffering on a global scale now and one day having to answer to our maker for our ingratitude. Oh Jeff, I hear you say you're so pessimistic. Surely there's a possibility that we'll make better choices over time. Surely there's a possibility that if we just try hard enough, if we band together, somehow we might return to our maker of our own volition. Well, if that's the sentiment that you're feeling at the moment, let me introduce you to our second doctrine for today. Turn over the page. This is the doctrine of total depravity. The doctrine of total depravity. Now, let me be clear, because the doctrine of total depravity is often misunderstood. The doctrine of total depravity doesn't mean I am the worst I could possibly be all the time. That's not what it means. What the doctrine of total depravity means is that every part of me is corrupt in some way. Again, don't miss me. I'm not saying there is no good in us. There is good in people. Of course there is good in people. There must be good in people. We are made in the image of God after all. So that even if we're marred and disfigured by our sin, still we retain some traces of the goodness of our maker. But what I am saying is that every part of us is broken in some way. Every part of us is broken in some way. And that means no amount of self-help or self-improvement can ever lead us back to God. It can never rehabilitate our broken world. And to put it slightly differently, it means that even the most altruistic of actions is still tinged with impure motive. Even the most altruistic of your actions, still there is some sense in which your motive is impure. Now, as we're going to see next week, uh, that means that even if there is such a thing as free will, uh, Romans 1 says we always use that free will to turn away from God, to suppress the truth, to engage in a cover-up. And in a sense, to anticipate what will come next week, I'm going to say that I don't even think there's much point in us talking about free will, not if we always use our freedom for a cover-up. Now, the reason why I say this is because if we could choose to keep God's commands, if we could obey him completely, then what Paul will say is that Christ's death was unnecessary. If we could have found our way back to God, Christ need not have died. Take, for example, Galatians 2, verse 21, printed there on your handout. Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. What total depravity says in the end is that the only thing I contribute to my salvation is my sin. The only part that I play in God's plan for salvation was that I create the problem. In fact, in Romans 7, Paul will say we are slaves to sin, entrapped by our fallen nature. 
And the reason I'll say that is because unconstrained freedom, like in the, in the Canadian riots, it brings out the worst in us, not the best. Paul will go on to say in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are dead in our sins. Dead in our sins. Look at Ephesians 2 verse 4. Because of his great love for us, Christ who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. If Paul can say we are dead in our sins, that kills off any hope that we could help ourselves. Because, and I don't mean to sound too facetious here, the one thing a dead person can't do is self-administer CPR. You cannot help yourself if you are dead in your sins. In fact, the New Testament will say, therefore, that even repentance and faith must be gifts from God. They are not works of our own. And there's a couple of passages there you could look up later. Well, what does all this mean? Let me try and draw one particular application. Uh, Earlier this year, I went to a conference on evangelism. Uh, It's a conference for pastors uh, that have been called to uh, help pastors here in Adelaide think about the challenge of trying to reach out with the gospel in this particular part of the world, in, in Adelaide, in our time, in our place. It was designed to address declining conversion rates. And that's, of course, not just our situation here in Adelaide. It feels like that throughout the Western world, doesn't it? Uh, the rise of secularism, the marginalisation of the church, growing biblical illiteracy, it feels like it's getting harder and harder to bring people to Christ. And so presenter after presenter talked about all the challenges and all the difficulties until one presenter got up and he started his presentation by saying something which has stuck in my mind ever since. Here's what he said. He said, Evangelism is just as hard today as it has ever been because people are just as spiritually dead as they have ever been. If we are dead in our sins we need someone else to do something to bring us back to life. And that, of course, is the hope in this talk. Here's the second question. Is there any hope? Jesus says he will build his church and nothing will stand against him. So there must be hope. And this is the wonderful news of the gospel. This, of course, is where my whole dentist analogy breaks down because... In the gospel, the cost of the solution is borne by another. It's borne by Christ himself. Christ who died for me because he loves us. Uh, I said, uh, actually, that I think that Christians ought be realistically pessimistic about human nature. Uh, We alone, actually, are not devastated when we see the worst of humanity, partly because we've come to expect it. But at the same time, Christians alone, I think, can be unfailingly optimistic about the future. Why? Because of God's great mercy. He has made us alive in Christ. Many of you will be familiar with John Newton, Uh, John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, the song that uh, we love to sing. Most of you will know that before John Newton became a Christian, that he was a slave trader, involved in arguably the foulest expression of humanity's total depravity, to enslave other people to your will. 
Here's what he said at the end of his life. Printed there on your handout. My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. That I'm a great sinner and that Christ is a great saviour. Well, a big idea, some questions. Let me try and draw it together with some suggestions about how we might respond. Uh, Remember today's big idea. If God treated us fairly, as we deserve, no one would be saved. Uh, I understand that that leaves lots of unanswered questions for us next... uh, Lots of unanswered questions, and we'll come back to them next week. Questions like, well, on what basis then does God choose anyone to be saved if no one deserves it? Those are good questions to ask, and we'll return to them in the weeks ahead. But today... I just wanted to show that if no one deserves our Creator's kindness, it means you cannot earn God's mercy, you cannot demand His mercy. You can only receive it as a gift, not claim it as an entitlement. So let me finish then with two practical responses, and I want to take them both from the, Pharisee, from the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and the second of the readings that came to us. Here you go, there's a stop and a start. Firstly, in the blank for you to fill in, stop looking down on others. Stop looking down on others. As bluntly as possible, I want to say there is no place for pride or boasting in the Christian community. There is no place for pride or boasting in the Christian community. After all, all of us have rejected our loving Creator All of us have chosen to live our own way apart from God, so all of us are guilty. None of us is any better, not when compared with our wonderful Creator. Uh, That's why I gave today's talk the title that I did. I just ripped it shamelessly out of Romans chapter 3, verse 10. There is no one righteous, not even one. And so in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18... The Pharisee boasts of how, well, quite frankly, he thinks he looks a little less bad than the tax collector. But it's the tax collector who realises the benchmark is not other sinners. It's not the other people in the pews. The benchmark is the perfect creator. There is no place for pride or boasting in the Christian community. Uh, When I was in high school, I had a high school maths teacher who was always happy to give out half marks. You know how this goes, right? You get the answer wrong, but you've shown all your working, and then you say to the teacher, well, look, can I have half marks? Because I almost got it right, but I just got the last step wrong. He was very happy to give out half marks all the time, provided he always rounded down, because he said, who cares if you're halfway across the road and the bus hits you? You're still dead. And yet the problem is we still find ourselves subtly comparing ourselves to others. Trying to portray ourselves more favourably than the other sinners in our community. Even in church, we can do that. Here's a couple of ways in which I think subtly it can creep in. Firstly, we can think that that person, so-and-so, they could never become a Christian. And we can think that way to justify why we won't share the gospel with them. Perhaps because we're afraid, because we're embarrassed or awkward, or it just would take too much time and effort. 
Let me ask you who you would put in that category of thinking they are too far gone to be saved by Jesus. A murderer? A pedophile? An adulterer? If you were the one who was betrayed? Can you see that even by thinking in those terms, you've assumed that your sinfulness is somehow less bad than theirs? When it cost Christ's blood to atone for your sin as well. Um, I brought with me a bunch of books. Uh, there's a bookstore that we're trying to run to help you think about some of the issues that are raised here. The book that I want to mention today for you is this one here. Uh, there's a reference to it on the bottom of your handout. It's this one here by Jerry Bridges. It's a brilliant book. The book is called Respectable Sins. Respectable Sins. I'm sure you can guess what his argument is, that there's a whole bunch of things that we're happy to see in other people's lives and never acknowledge in our own. It's a terrific book. You can pick that up from the bookstall if you'd like. And perhaps um, as you do chat over morning tea and continue the conversations you started earlier, I've tried to give you a discussion question that might be a bit pointier, and you'll see it there at the bottom. Which sins do you consider worse than others? And more importantly, why? That's one way in which I think we still can fall into the temptation of subtly comparing ourselves with others. Here's another way, and it's a slightly different direction to take us. Sometimes, oddly, I think we can secretly wish that we had, if I can put it this way, a more dramatic conversion story. And this is particularly a problem for those of us who've grown up in the church, uh, who have spent all our lives never knowing a day where we haven't known Jesus. If you're that kind of person, sometimes when you hear someone come up and they give their testimony in church, you know, the person gets up and says something like, well, once upon a time I was a drug-dealing axe murderer and I repented on death row and I stand before you today to talk about Jesus. And you can find yourself thinking, man, I wish I had a testimony like that because that would be so much more powerful, wouldn't it? Can I say to you that if you were born in a Christian family and you were the kind of person who was the good child who always did what you were told, who's always known that Jesus loves you, then I want to say, that's wonderful. But at some point, you were dead in your sins and you've been brought back to spiritual life. I think that's still pretty amazing. If you think that your testimony will sound boring... Just be careful that you're not at risk of becoming like the Pharisee. Well, thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. Make sure you don't become like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. Because what we learn from his testimony is that you can be totally lost, even if you've never left home. My confession is that uh, actually when I come to church, when I came to Trinity Church Woodcroft today for the second time, actually deep down, I want you to look at me like I'm the outwardly respectable Pharisee. Not like the outwardly broken but inwardly justified tax collector. So firstly, stop looking down at others. Here's the second and final thing to say in terms of a possible response. Start by confessing your own sin today. Start by confessing your own sin today.
And in a moment, we're going to do just that. I'm going to lead us in a prayer of confession. Before I do, whatever your brokenness, I want to say today, firstly, I'm sorry if other Christians have ever looked down on you. If you've ever been looked down on by Christians for your sexuality, for your racial background, for just being different, they ought not have done so. Because all of us are broken. All of us are involved in the cover-up. None of us is better than any other. And so the second thing to say, whether you're a younger sibling who has run away or an older sibling who never left home, though even now your heart seethes with envy and jealousy, come home. Come home. If you came to church this morning dressed like that Pharisee, heart full of pride, make sure you go home today like the tax collector, repentant and justified before God.